0: We were just driving millions and millions of views on YouTube. You know, Zoe was an absolute superstar, literally couldn't, you know, appear in public without being mobbed. And that was true of quite a few talent on the Gleam roster. And when they were in one place, it was absolute pandemonium. So it was really exciting and inspiring, I guess, to be around the birth of a, a phenomenon.
1: That's Dom Smales, the founder of Gleam Futures, and the Zoe he's talking about is Zoe Suggs, who you might better know as Zoella, one of the UK's first and biggest social media stars. This is because Dom predicted the rise of the influencer, and Gleam was one of the first social media talent agencies in the world. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Surter, and we're gonna be learning from founders who've been in the thick of it once again. Now, Gleam was set up back in 2010 before social media influence were even a thing. It went on to represent some of the biggest names in the industry. I sat down with Dom to talk about how he developed and grew the business and what it was like stepping away from that company last year and what he really thinks about the influencer industry today. But I started by asking him what he wanted to be when he was young.
0: My first memory is that I wanted to drive one of those trucks that went around the countryside and emptied people's private cesspits.
1: This is niche. (laughs)
0: It's very niche. And then I went on from there, from cesspit emptier to fighter pilot and then graduated from there, not really knowing to tell you the truth. And if you were to ask me today, I still kind of wouldn't know. I haven't really ever been very focused on a vocation. It's more been about trying to find something that kept my interest for long enough. And I remember going through lots of iterations, like I'm interested in that. Yeah, I'm going to focus in on it. And then, kind of like lapsing out of interest. Basically, I wanted to be an actor at one point as well. I went and I did a drama degree at university.
1: Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I used to love being in school plays, generally for the camaraderie and the fun.
1: What was your dream role?
0: I think I was first. I must have been about twelve or so, and the school play was Toad of Toad Hall. And everyone was like, "Oh, are you going to try to go for Toad or not?" And I like, "Yeah, I'm going to try and go for Toad." And I, and I went for Toad. And bear in mind, there's quite a. A lot of other main roles around the Toad role in Toad of Toad Hall, and I got cast as Stoat number six. And it was one of those moments that taught me that when you want something like that, you can't always rely on it happening, and and generally, it's going to need not only luck, but also talent and a lot of hard work in order to get what you want. (laughs) So I quietly went about being Stoat number six and loved it. But then worked really hard, actually, on trying to get better and better and uh, eventually got cast in some better roles a bit further down the line.
1: Interesting. I also interviewed for Toad of Toad Hall. Very proud to say that I did get it.
0: And you got Toad?
1: I did. It's one of my, Amazing. Um, still to this day, one of my mum's proudest achievements of me was being Toad of Toad Hall. But I was only like nine or something. <laughs> so and it just goes to show how little I've accomplished since because I think she still talks about it. You peaked at
0: toad basically at, at nine
1: yeah I peaked as a nine year old it's really quite depressing um, <laughs> okay let's move on from our both of our own little uh, little anecdotes into the world of acting and our, our glamorous failures <laughs> what like how did you get into the content world? I was
0: always fascinated by it and I guess you could link kind of like the enjoyment of you know doing a drama degree at university. And then thinking about the entertainment industry. And then I, caught, I went through a phase of being in a band and wanting to be a pop star as well, and all of that kind of stuff. And I was always kind of like, without ever thinking about it, like this is going to be my career. I was always drawn towards the creation of, you know, content, I guess, even when, you know, these are in the days before the internet existed when I was playing in a band. And I ended up, because of my lack of, particular focus in terms of a career just bobbing from one general media marketing role to another after I graduated from college with my drama degree and not being an actor and I did a stint at my stepdad's marketing agency for a bit and then I worked at local newspapers and then I worked at national newspapers and then I ended up at radio stations but I was always on the kind of like the roles that needed someone to sell something basically and it was media sales that really kind of like began to be my career but me i always tried and succeeded in getting jobs doing media sales for mediums that i was really passionate about the content as well i worked at the local newspaper to start with but actually really loved kind of like the community aspect of that and then went to the national newspapers and i really loved pushing the boundaries of what you could do in the, in newspapers, and then ended up at a radio group, the Chrysalis Radio, in fact, which now is global radio. And I spent quite a long time there and absolutely loved it. So that's my kind of entry into content and media, I guess. And it was when I left the radio station group, when I les- left Chrysalis, and went to work at a production company on a much kind of like sharper end of Making content that uh, it, it formed the kind of like this, the really solid step between that and then the social media that, that came on afterwards. Social media, as we know it now, kind of got invented while I was at the production company after the radio station group. So, Facebook, for example, YouTube, those kind of platforms
1: I've heard of came them. to light
0: during that time. Heard of them?
1: I heard of them. Yeah. I think they'll be big. <laughs> I think it'd be fair to say you pretty much predicted the rise of the influencer and got on very early into the trend. So how did you get from radio to production company to starting Gleam? What what did you find? What was this unique insight? Uh,
0: I wish I could pinpoint it and... And when people ask me this, I always say there was no blinding flash of light and kind of like an epiphany moment where I saw a vision of the future in terms of how social media talent would shape up and become as valuable as the influencer marketing industry is right now. Uh, It wasn't that. It was more that I worked at a production company that was entrepreneurial and dynamic. It was small. And we were making content on all kinds of platforms. In fact, I ended up being the MD of this production company and uh, we pivoted somewhat from being doing radio promotions a lot to being a content production company and and not for any one particular platform. It was multi-platform content. You need some content, you're a performer, you're a brand, then you can come here and we can help you make it. And at that point, uh, I was noticing, you know, all the young people in the office were becoming obsessed with Facebook And spending a lot more time on it. Uh, I was becoming obsessed with YouTube and how that was becoming a a really valid entertainment platform. And I was becoming obsessed with the talent that was beginning to rise up on the platform. And I quietly kind of like studied it, basically. But it was actually it was um, I had a I had a health scare at this point in my life. So I was working at a production company. I had two small babies Uh, You know, it was fairly, fairly stressful as running any businesses. And uh, I got hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain. And it ended up like completely wiping me out. Like I collapsed in the street. I was uh, rushed into hospital. I had emergency brain surgery. It was uh, like major. And and it took me a good kind of six months post-surgery to surface and feel strong enough to be in the real world, as it were. But what that whole thing did was give me real perspective on what I wanted my life to become and be. And one of the things I really missed was control of my own diary. And I wanted to, I'd always wanted to have a crack at running my own business. And I saw that as a a window to do that, basically. So resigned from production company, started my own business, started Gleam, as it was called, Gleam Digital, and Clean Digital was founded on the fact that I was fascinated by social media, this interest that was growing with Facebook and YouTube and Twitter at the time. And I felt with my experience working for big media owners and working at marketing agencies and and then the production company, I could advise brands well on how to use those social media platforms best, basically, and also connect with the community of people that were building audiences on those platforms. And could you uh yeah it was it was it was fairly if i I mean not to underplay it, but it was fairly simple in my eyes that people strove so hard, brands strove so hard to get the attention of audiences in an engaged way, so kind of like try and stand out from the crowd and and after having a background in advertising where the whole you know piece was about how do we make our ads stand out more, grab the attention of the audience better, et cetera. And I saw that happen in radio and newspapers and TV and all kinds of places. And then I could see this, these platforms commanding such huge engagement, but small audiences. It was a bit of a no-brainer that, well, why don't you get these guys who are making makeup tutorials uh, on YouTube to include your brand in their content? And it will be really you know, fun and engaging. Like you're gonna, you're gonna see people's reactions immediately because there's a comment section underneath. But of course, most brands had not got these platforms on their radar at all at this point.
1: So you've started this agency and was it an agency to begin with? Just to be clear, like what was the like initial pitch? Like, because you, what you went into obviously was talent management. That's what you're like so well known for. But was it really pitched as that at the time?
0: No, it wasn't. So it was a social media agency. So I was advising on how to use social media platforms effectively as brands. My experience was in brands, but it was during those first, say, six months of me advising brands on how to connect with communities online that I met a lot of what are now called influencers. uh, And I was I guess I was the first to call them talent, I think, because no one was calling them talent. They were bloggers. I realized that these, this is a platform that is only going to grow and this is talent that is only going to grow if you find the right talent. Um, and I met two girls who were sisters and they were making makeup tutorials on YouTube on a channel they called Pixie Woo. And they were professional makeup artists, so they were making good content with good qualified advice and their audience was highly engaged, learning something and growing all the time. And when I met these two girls, they're called Sam and Nick Chapman, the penny dropped for me in terms of like, they could be more than bloggers. Uh, These guys could be talent. And I was seeing them as being equal to, if not better than the presenters and people that wanted to be on TV that were coming through the production company. And I found it fascinating that the, you know, production companies, TV broadcasters, et cetera, could be replaced by a community-owned almost or, like, user-owned channels on social media platforms that didn't have any restrictions in terms of distribution. It was basically anybody with the internet that you could attract with your knowledge, expertise, and personality. And that's what these guys had in spades. So at that point in time, I pivoted, and it became about talent management, grew a roster of talents who were on social media platforms only and bearing in mind that literally nobody in Europe or the UK was doing this there were probably a couple of people in the states that were beginning to kind of like shape the careers of people that had big YouTube channels but nobody was doing it in the UK or Europe it always struck a chord with anybody that was passionate about creating content on the internet and they wanted to be helped and protected and I had a decent amount of experience in media and the value of the media that they were creating to be able to, you know, give them a a vision for their, you know, career and future kind of thing. At this time, brands were twigging on literally with more velocity by the week to the fact that social media was going to be very interesting for them. And that meant that the really big agencies And big agency groups were also twigging that this would be a source of revenue of advice for the brands. So they were gearing up and Little Gleam Digital, which was kind of me at the time, I started getting competed with by these huge agency groups who wanted to, you know, bring to bear massive account handling teams and, you know, launch social media departments within their, comms agencies and so on and so forth. And uh, it was a bit of a hiding to nothing for me. I wasn't going to be able to, you know, scale up that fast. But what I did know is that talent would always hold the power. And I sided with the talent at that fulcrum of, you know, the big agencies getting interested and started representing the talent a hundred percent
1: to the brands. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com/secretleaders. That's v a n t a.com/secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. You've signed up a bunch of these big names. So you had um, Zoella?
0: Zoe Sugg,
1: yeah. How did that come around?
0: Uh, oh, met Zoe in the community, kind of like around social media events. In those days, the creators really did have a community. They were all real life pals that wanted to create content together and so on. And I met Zoe in a social situation when she was starting out and she literally was completely natural at it and we met and it was just amazing timing in terms of what we could offer in terms of protection advice guidance and what zoe was creating herself as well at the time which was pretty unique and her as a as a person and zoe went on to be again one of the biggest creators of a generation and still is
1: yeah and i think that's an interesting thing right because even for me um, and I don't know anything back then, especially, about influencers or this category. And certainly if I did, it wouldn't be, you know, in this space. Even me, I knew about Zoella. I mean, everyone just knew about Zoella. They knew about Zoe Sugg. So it was really interesting phenomenon, right? Because I think there was this um, narrative around there's an influencer movement happening. It's a thing. And then there was also this one person that sort of everyone was aware of was the biggest YouTuber in the UK and everything else and had a book and all this stuff, and it was a sort of different um, aura and superstardom around that narrative. I'm just wondering what it, was in, what it was like to manage someone who was, I suppose, and this is, again, I never met her. Um, and I've, uh, full disclosure, never watched a single video either, um, so I have no context. But what it was like to obviously manage an, an, an actual star.
0: It was incredibly exciting at that time, and I'm thinking probably around 2013, 2014. And Zoe was part of what was known as the, you know, the British YouTuber Revolution, the Brit Crew. She was in a, a gang of friends who were real friends, still are, and then you had a generation of consumers, audience, people that loved YouTube that felt like they'd found a platform that was theirs. They'd found an entertainment platform that belonged to them. Their parents weren't on it. All their parents were on Facebook. um, And that's how they got their entertainment. And it stayed that way for a good few years. And we made enormous strides in those few years, almost uh, kind of like without being noticed, really, until we started publishing books a bit later in 2014, 2015, and started achieving book sales that were rivaling, you know, the biggest brand authors. And then suddenly everybody popped up on the radar. The word influencer was invented about that time, I think, um, by the marketing industry. And we were achieving things in legacy media like, uh, you know, licensing and publishing that TV talent weren't able to do uh so it became a very big deal and and got the attention of a lot of very um you know serious people we were grappling with making sure that we always stayed compliant as well as the advertising budgets got bigger and bigger and because the stakes got much higher so did the levels of stress the pressure on the talent uh became really intense as well people expected a lot of them and remember these are these are people that didn't go to stage school or roll out of bed, you know, one morning and decide I want to be a, I want to be famous. These were just consumers who were passionate about doing makeup or, you know, having fun or music or whatever, and then shared that on their social media platform, which was just native to them really in that generation.
1: And when you're dealing with, you know, a superstar, At what point do the rates become so silly that it's like hard to find ROI, right? Because people obviously, understandably, they value the amount of time they actually want to spend creating content anyway. So the price tag obviously is also a function of how hard they want to work and how frequently, which is also very fair and reasonable when you've got a certain size audience. How do you sort of reconcile that um, over the years with the power of social media algorithms changing all the time and therefore actually engagement dropping anyway, but prices seem to rise. So I guess the question is, would you agree with the statement that prices have seemed to have risen and risen in the influencer category, but results have dwindled and dwindled? And it's no fault of the influencer, but it's certainly a state of an old model not moving on and not necessarily changing and adapting to changing circumstances. And this is obviously, as you can hear, my perspective, but feels like Clients have caught onto this or most clients have caught onto this. Do you think this is all going to have a massive shift imminently? Or do you think that I'm way off and actually this is the wrong observation?
0: Uh, God, yeah. So uh, uh, in answer to multiple questions, yes, I think that there will be an enormous shift soon. No, I don't think that that the value has dropped away. It's just the volume of players in the marketplace has just exploded exponentially uh, therefore diluting like any value that you could have found before back in 2012, when we were doing deals with brands and talent, the brands were getting enormous value. And then of course prices went up. We pushed to make sure that the talent got their value. I don't ever regret any any fees that were paid because I think the the talent, I genuinely think the talent were definitely worth it um, because I still think there is. And even when you look at the, the huge talent, huge social media talent at the moment, of which there's only a handful really, um, I still think they're probably undervalued. But what has happened is instead of there being, I don't know, there would have been about a thousand people that called themselves professional content creators in 2010, 2012, like, In the world maybe and now there are million upon million of them it's the most popular job description that school leavers cite when they're asked what they want to do when they grow up is be an influencer above pilot doctor professional athlete all of those kind of jobs so there's just an an absolute tsunami of choice for the advertiser and i think wrong decisions are being made it's very hard to track effectiveness now and Although you look at the amount of advertising dollars flowing into the influencer marketing spend is going through the roof, so is the amount of influencers in the marketplace going through the roof. And I think when those those two things meet, you, you're getting a reduction in uh, engagement and a, maybe a reduction in quality as well. And therefore, you're seeing a reduction in good results and, and then some cynical viewpoints that you might have adopted since. Ah,
1: I know what you're talking about um I'm nothing nothing but cynical (laughs) and it is fascinating I find it so fascinating myself because I you know I'm deeply optimistic and positive about human beings but I just am so cynical when it comes to influencers and I think it's just because It just makes me dislike social media. I just don't want to feel like I'm being sold to every single time I'm trying to see a single opinion on social media. It's just none of it feels real. And so it just grinds on me. And also, I guess, because of the category that I'm in, which is, you know, health and wellness and supplements is just so much shady crap that is positively supported. And that all makes me lose some confidence in humanity. Not loads, but some. (laughs) And, you know, that's not a good place to be.
0: Listen, I agree with you. A hundred percent. But there are, there are two factors that I will cling to. And that is if you find the right partnership between the right talent and the right brand, and it is a genuine collaboration between those two things, then it really works. Like it really works. There wouldn't be the industry that has sprung up over the last 10 years if it didn't work and it continues to work and you know budgets continue to rise, et cetera. Uh, So you need to have proper advice and also be hugely discerning about talent that you engage with on the Internet. The second thing is that I think that the problem we've got is that what was so special about social media back in 2010 was that unique relationship between the audience and the creator, where the audience was the creator's studio boss the editor, the editor-in-chief of their content. And they and the audience was the sounding board, the, ref, the reflection that the creator wanted to see because they were who they were creating for. And that's the only thing that drove their view count up and and got them kind of like an audience to be able to share their content, creativity, knowledge, expertise, or whatever with. Now, I think that the advertiser has become that, editor so in an environment where it was editor free and I loved that about social media there was no kind of like media old guard a load of media execs there sat there deciding who's famous who's not who's talented who's not let the audience decide on social media and it was the first time that that environment became really meaningful because it got scale with you know the advent of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and so on and now I think that the we still pretend that oh it's really it's a really democratized you know media environment actually creators can create and you can find all kinds of niche content but but no on platforms like instagram now and facebook and youtube it's highly edited and censored in order to make it palatable for the advertiser
1: taking away my personal perspective and my personal cynicism to the space let's go back to the young and refreshed and Doe-eyed, positive, energetic, enigmatic Dom smells at the start of the Gleam journey. So take us through from start to exit and why even exit? And can you talk about numbers? Can you talk about figures? I don't know what is public, what's not public, but share what you can. Uh,
0: So um, the whole, the growth of Gleam was totally organic all the way through the first kind of like, you know, seven, eight years before The conversations with a potential uh, investor partner started happening and it was based on the fact that we had a really big head start on the whole influencer industry so we were able to piece the company together bit by bit as you know the budgets accelerated and the interest accelerated so it was you know we were lucky in terms of the timing we had four years jump on anybody else getting into the space pretty much and in those four years I met some brilliant people i'm a big believer in hiring people for kind of like attitude passion that's their whole approach to work rather than specific qualifications or even experience especially in this type of industry and and also we were no one else is doing it so there was no kind of like set it's not like we were getting into insurance and this is the way that you sell insurance policies it has to be you have to adhere to these things everybody was making it up <laughs> as they went along uh, and we just we were principled and you know wanted to be compliant uh, had the talent's best interests at heart so we were able to kind of pave the, the right way we hope um, and it was it was a decision fairly early on to try and build a business that could cope with the future that I saw happening for this for these particular talent on these mediums instead of becoming, which was prolific in the entertainment field, like a one-man band manager. And I think because of the infancy of the industry and the scale that it could get to because of the scale of the internet and the distribution channels, I chose to try and build something to cope with that scale. And so started hiring people that could help manage the talent. So as we took more talent on, I hired people to look after the talent whilst uh, I focused on building the industry that they could inhabit and the business that they could profit from in the future with then all that we did as more and more people came on board to become admin and then up to manager and then up from manager into the verticals that we created in publishing and licensing and uh, production even and uh, apps at one stage and legal and Uh, brands and so on all the different departments that kind of like spawned off this audience that was being created the aim was always how do we create something that is sustainable and long term for the talent that are coming onto the platform and into the business and this is where it's at odds i think with where the influencer industry has got to at the moment because we were building careers strategically and all these things came off of that like the you know the book deals the products the brand deals all that kind of stuff but it was about how do we create something for the talent to um, you know live their whole life being a professional co- content creator doing conversely now i think the influencer industry is very much focused around creating short-term income off of uh you know quick content quick cash quick content
1: So you're a few years into this business. The business has grown exponentially. Um, How do you start moving towards exit? Like, why do you start moving towards exit? Who approaches who? Are you actively looking? It was
0: a crazy period of huge uh, growth all the time. But it got to the point where everybody in the marketing and entertainment industry was talking about influencer and digital first talent. Everybody wanted a part of it. Every day I was approached by big players in the entertainment business that wanted our knowledge, our talent, our access. You know, I remember taking a phone call from Simon Cowell, for example, saying, did I want to have dinner? Because he wanted to understand this space, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of Gleam for like, oh God, they never fucking reply to any emails or it's really hard to get the attention of managers or whatever. But what people don't realise is that at a particular point in time, there were like 10 emails a minute coming into every single manager at Gleam's inbox with requests for attention from the manager and the talent. And you would go to an hour meeting, you came back to hundreds and hundreds of unread emails in your inbox. It was just physically impossible unless you turned the business into a call center to deal with the amount of attention that the, the space was getting. And I knew that the competition was literally coming over the hill as a marauding rabble. We had to scale up even faster than we were scaling up if we were going to be able to compete. Talent notoriously uh, have their heads easily turned by the promise of a bigger, brighter thing. And we needed to make sure that we were robust enough, we were muscular enough to be that bigger, brighter thing for the talent continuously. So I, I I got to a point where as well as Gleam was was doing my diary wasn't my own again ironically because I remember I started the business because I wanted my diary to be my own I'd had this big health thing I wanted to spend more time with my family and then the Gleam you know like treadmill started and I just had to run faster and faster and faster and that meant spending less and less and less time with my family I traveled around the world constantly it was all balanced on as well the entertainment business and the digital entertainment business and I wanted to secure take some money off the table and secure my family's future if nothing else as a as recompense for the sacrifices that i've made so far on the journey all the the moments with my kids growing up that i hadn't been there and so at that point in time we started looking for investment and it started off being right we want a partner we want investment we want money coming into the business we want access to money that we hadn't had before and we want to be global like now rather than you know slowly open up offices and hope that we make profit and all of that kind of stuff we want to be global right now because this is a global opportunity and that's when we went and we started on the road to um to find a partner and eventually partnered with dentsu
1: what was the exit process like with dentsu did you have lots of buyers you said you were looking for investment it turned into a buyout typically speaking to get the best price, obviously you have quite a competitive process going on. What was your situation?
0: It wasn't about the money. I mean, you just mentioned that, like trying to drive a competitive process to get the best price. We genuinely were looking for the best partner. It was about that kind of like dating process because it was a not very well well understood business and industry. Uh, so we met lots of people and we hired advisors to help us meet lots of people, it ended up being Dentsu because we looked for a business that could give us expertise and access to enormous brand budgets and interest that hadn't really been properly realised yet because influencer budgets were going like this, but it was still nothing compared to what brands were spending on television and um, outdoor and cinema and so on and so forth. And we wanted access to that and we wanted better expertise at it. Remember, my background was in media as well. And Dentsu were oh, brilliant at that. And, of course, Dentsu was a originally a Japanese, a Japanese company, it had big roots in Japan. It could open up that area of the world for us. And we thought, again, that was something we didn't have at the moment. So it fitted really nicely
1: and was it a full buyout?
0: No, uh so I don't want to kind of like uh, lift the lid completely on it, but it was there was a majority stake taken in 2017 and then uh we worked together to grow the business over the next, you know, 3 or 4 years.
1: And are you fully out now then? So because I guess this is also sometimes um described as an earnout uh, and Uh, The reason I'm asking these questions, other than, you know, I'm fucking nosy, as you know, um, sorry, curious, (laughs) is different industries have very different rules around how to realise value on exits and everything else. But agencies are very notorious for lengthy, tough to hit targets and stuff with earn out periods, etc. And I know this from my friends that have done exits in agencies. So What you are able to share with our audience that might not know about this stuff, but maybe running agencies themselves, um, a lot of them do, would be really insightful.
0: One piece of advice I would give to anybody listening who's thinking about that kind of integration and going on that journey and all of that kind of stuff is that there can never be enough planning for the years that come after the initial deal. So planning of like, how are we going to integrate effectively? What particular Hurdles that we're going to put in place that are really achievable on a time basis. So, what exactly are we going to do week one versus week a hundred during our integration process? And let's make sure we stick to that, because once you're kind of like all the excitement of like getting a big partner and doing a deal, and like we ended up moving into the Dentsu offices as well a, a couple of years after the initial deal, it's just so kind of like overwhelming that everybody wants to know about what it is that you're doing, and it, when it comes to influencer and digital first talent as well it was a completely alien thing to them but a very sexy thing as well to take two clients so we ended up you know being very very busy servicing all of the interest and we i don't know maybe kind of like it could have been we could have been we could have been even more efficient basically i guess if we'd been forensic about what stages we would have gone through I'm saying that hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing, but I don't think you can do enough of that planning. Basically. I would again, advocate massively for that. If, if you are, if you're in a people business, then spend all the time finding the right partner rather than the right check. Do you know what I mean? The right number, because there were bigger numbers flying around, but this was the right partner. And I think that if you're, unless you are you know, it's a really kind of like nuts and bolts business, like fitting into another nuts and bolts business, then that partnership is really key.
1: So now now that you're fully out, how do you think of Gleam? And I guess what I mean to say is other than you using words like, well, I'm very proud of Gleam because it's my startup and oh, I feel all gooey. I guess what I'm more interested in is the identity you were Dom from Gleam for, you know, over a decade, right? Dom from Gleam, speak to Dom from Gleam, I'm Dom, this is Gleam. Oh, yeah, I've heard of Gleam. You're Dom. Well, now you're not. So are you still or how do you feel about this whole identity thing? Have you had time to process this?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really tough, actually, to tell you the truth, because there was like a moment of realisation that that I wasn't going to be Dom from Gleam forever, and uh, we've been all kind of like so focused and working so hard on making sure that, you know, Gleam became the Gleam it was capable of being inside Dentsu. That kind of right like when I looked up um, in 2020 or whatever, it, it was obvious that the business would do better if Dom from Gleam wasn't so closely associated with it. And I it was time for me also to find new challenges and become someone else other than Dom from Gleam. And... Hence, you know, me being fully exited now, not working in the business at all. And as I said, the business continues to completely thrive, of course, without me. Maybe do better, do better without me. Um, And I did find that really difficult emotionally when I first came out. We were mid-pandemic. I suddenly woke up one morning in my little study at home, kind of like with no gleam email address and no job and no kind of like next target to get to and you know, plateau to reach, etc., And it sounds super cheesy, but the whole kind of like, you know, appreciating the journey, not just the summit and all of that kind of stuff is so, it became so lucid to me as, you know, being advice you should take because I've been obsessed with getting to a particular point. And then when I was kind of like out, I did feel a huge lack of purpose and identity, I guess. That resulted in what I can only describe as probably being close to depression, um, and it took some, you know, good advice. I call it therapy, but it kind of it was more kind of like vocational therapy, <laughs> to really kind of like find out what it was that I wanted to do next, and that really helped. But yeah, it was very hard to suddenly not be not be dom from gleam, and it's funny you notice like people if you're not dom from gleam phoning up, then you're, you're less less valuable. Like, Simon hasn't invited me around for ages, for example, you know?
1: On this note, though, do you find it hard with your friends to admit you're depressed or admit you have feelings of pity and sorrow and woe, etc. under also the guise of wealth? Because I imagine people find it very hard to feel sorry for you if you suddenly have money and you've made it and are unable to separate the two two things from each other.
0: Uh, Yeah, totally. And it kind of like taught me another valuable lesson in that kind of, and I always knew this, but it was like a proper kind of smacks you in the face. It doesn't matter how much money you've got in the bank. If you don't have your, you know, mental health, your relationships, your uh, physical health, then you have nothing. And, And it's not something that you can bleat about because you have been, you know, outwardly seemingly successful. You're not allowed really to to moan too much, and you see that happen all the time in you know the celebrity world and so on like people just don't like to hear people kind of like not be happy with their lot if you seem to be successful commercially or financially, but you know with yourself and your therapist or your you know wife, your partner, whoever, you must really you know care for your mental health and your physical health because I've never known it so explicitly it is the most important thing. In your uh, life, you know, that, uh, that and the mental and physical health of those that you love and care for.
1: Dom Smales reminding us to look after ourselves. Next week on Secret Leaders. When you start a business, you really need to start with the problem. I've heard and I've seen it so many times that people start with idea. But, you know, kind of the, the reason why Sweatcoin is so successful was because it was a problem and it was a problem that we realized is just universal. That was Oleg Fomenko, the founder of Sweatcoin, an app which rewards users for walking by giving them a cryptocurrency. They have over 100 million users and he started it shortly after his previous startup failed. Everyone was telling him to get a proper job. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.